in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, this is Patrick Pister, and this show is for everybody who has interest in HSE and the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. I'm joined here in Brio Tuscan Grill in City Center by my surprise co-host, Barton Scott. Uh, he's one of the newest members of the Oil and Gas Global Network. and hey, everybody. Up, <laughs> an upcoming co-host of his own podcast, Focus on uh, Renewables in the Energy Industry. So welcome, Barton. That's right. Thanks, Patrick. So and, yeah, uh, if you want to give a little background about you, that's um, my little blurb about is what you're about to be doing, but yeah. tell, them, tell them about who you are. Yeah, so... Yeah, thanks, Patrick. Thanks to all of you listeners out there. So, yeah. Hello, everybody. My name is Barton Scott. My background is all over the place, frankly. I've been a chemical engineer and nutritionist and more recently a podcast host for OGGN, which is why I have the privilege of speaking with all of you today. So I also do... uh, It's that velvety smooth voice we wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I do also do a bit of acting, so maybe it's come from there. But a, a few years ago, I founded a nutrition company I'm very, very passionate about as well. But generally speaking, the reason I'm here is I just, I've always been into building things and seeking out engaging conversations. So it's very energizing to you know, have the opportunity to sit down with you and with Aaron. That's and right. Yeah. So uh, without further ado, I guess we can introduce our, our guest yeah, for today. So who yeah. do we have, Martin? Absolutely. We have Aaron Burton. Aaron? Hey guys, how's it going? So Aaron's part of uh, the Unconventional Oil and Gas Training Company, right? Company you started. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, coming up on three years pretty quick now. Yeah, so tell us about that, that uh, up until you got to the company. You know, what's, your, what's your background? How did you get into oil and gas and how did you get where you are today? So yeah, I started with uh, Baker Hughes in uh, the summer of 2012 and I uh, started as a field engineer I actually technically started in offshore Lafayette, Louisiana after about six months. That's uh, not offshore. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, they're offshore district right. in Lafayette, Louisiana, I should say. Got uh, Good catch, Patrick. Yeah, yeah. Good call. Good call. But uh, I did get to go on a couple of offshore rigs. But after uh, Q4 of, um, and I, I uh, misquoted my year there, it's 2007. I believe I said 2012, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So sorry about that. So in 2007, I started with Baker Hughes. And uh, after Q4 of 07, I'm sweeping the shop floor five times a day because budgets are spent in the Gulf of Mexico. There's nothing to do. I'm bugging the coordinators, begging them for something to do. Called my boss up, and I was like, man, come on. Somewhere, somebody needs a set of hands. So he said, you know what? Come to Houston. So I started building frack sleeves. Next thing I knew, I was teaching people how to build frack sleeves. Started running them in the field. And after uh, running them in the field, uh, learning how to run them in the field, then I started teaching how to build them in the field. And I uh, just got uh, very fortunate because I got to bounce all over the place and uh, run tools and, and do operations coordinating, things like that. So in 2008, at least to my knowledge, I was the uh, first one to run multi-stage completions in this type of applications outside of North America in China in the Sichuan province. And uh, once I kind of finished my field engineer role, I went to the Marcellus with Baker Hughes, was stationed there for about a year and a half. 
and came back to Houston, did some product line roles, some business development roles. And February 15, after my departure from Baker Hughes, I decided uh, it was time to uh, venture out and try my own uh, hand at it. So oh, That's very it. cool because you, you were actually awesome. helping build the equipment and then training people how to build the equipment yeah. and then going in the field using the equipment used to build in the shop. Right, right. Yeah, so it was yeah, definitely starting at the basics, which I, you know, to a certain yeah, extent is great. the key to the success, I believe. So. Sure. Yeah, and you mentioned something. So multi multi stage completions. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what what exactly that is? What are we talking about when we say multi stage completions? Yeah, yeah. So my background is multi stage completions specific to hydraulic fracturing. So the techniques that you'll hear commonly are going to be plug and perf. That's the most common type of system run. You've also got the frac sleeves, which can be the the ball activated frac sleeves or the cool tubing activated frac sleeves. So common terms there can be annular fracturing as well. Uh, so basically any of these formations that require multi-stage hydraulic fracturing to be economically viable, which everybody knows of the Permian, the Bach, and the Marcellus, all of these plays in the U.S. that have uh, and Canada, as well as a couple of international that have really come online recently. Yeah, and the Permian's on fire right now. It's doing a lot of activity yes, up there. a so. lot of activity on the Permian. Sure is. Hey, quick question. I, I know, you know, when we've talked before off mic, I've asked you, because there's there's a, a lot of controversy, it seems like, on fracking versus cement jobs and, you know, who can be at, at fault there. So I just wanted to hear you kind of clear that up. Like for people out there, they might have confusion that don't have the, the level of knowledge you have on it. Yeah. So the cement and the vertical casing, that's the key component, especially from protecting the water table. You have to have the correct cement job, the correct casing there. Your hydraulic fracturing is actually occurring very, very deep in the ground. Probably one of the most effective graphics I've seen on that is, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's like 10 Empire State buildings deep into the ground is the average, whereas the water table is less than 1,000 feet. So that is the critical component there, is making sure that you have the casing and the cement at surface that protects your groundwater and that, that there's no communication between that water table and the hydraulic frack job that you place into the well. It. It's funny, it. Bart. I was actually at a wedding up in D.C. years ago when fracking was everybody was talking. It was the kind of hot button issue. And a lot of the guests of this wedding were, you know, younger speechwriters, policymakers for, you know, the D.C. Democrats up there. Yeah. And we started obviously talking about oil and gas and fracking was hot at that time. So I thought they knew more about what it actually was because they're talking about it, they're writing policy on it, they're writing speeches about it. But, you know, they just had the boilerplate, the, you know, the, the hot button issues. To where I got, I was drawing a well diagram on a napkin at the reception, showing them exactly where the water table is with nice. casing and cement. And I, I even conceded, I said there could be methane creep up the, you know, the side of the cement between the in the annular, but that's not frac fluid. That's right. naturally occurring methane that could, yes, could get in the water table if you have a bad cement job and it's not there. So there is risk, but it's not the frac fluid that people think about. Right, exactly. exactly. Um, and I don't know if we want to go down this route, <laughs> yeah. but do you want to talk about any of the you know, seismic activity that Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now about seismic activity as it relates to fracking? Well, I, so, so I'll, I'll first off just say that I, by no means am I a uh, seismologist, but uh, from... That's from what I can to say, tell. three times fast, isn't it? Yeah, Seism right. <laughs> Seismologist. Yeah. Uh, from what I can tell, you know, the research I've done on it, it's not the fr hydraulic fracturing itself; it's the disposal water and disposing of the water afterwards uh, that's causing the issues. So that's the issue. So it's it's an indirect link at best to hydraulic fracturing. And, you know, you, you look at Oklahoma, they are coming out with new regulations on in, uh, wastewater injection and disposal, uh, specifically trying to target that seismic activity. 
<laughs> I don't know if I want to keep that part in there or not, but that's all right. No, that was good. Yeah, so okay. we kind of got a little off topic, but I think it's it's it is something people talk yeah. about and people have questions right. about. But uh, we kind of talked about your history and how you got to here. So right. your your company now, this unconventional oil and gas training. What kind of training is it? What do you actually do, and, and how are you making the industry better? Well, so I, I like to think I'm making the industry better by uh, just educating people on, on the different completion types and techniques out there. Kind of my overall message is that. There's many different types of ways to do it. There's many ways to set those up, and it really depends on what application you're in as to which one is the superior completion. So my basic training class goes through what all the completions are, how they compare, how they compare in different applications, why you might consider certain techniques over others uh, because of efficiency, because of cost, because of uh, time on location, which indirectly relates to safety as well. Absolutely. Uh, more time yeah. on location, the higher risk of safety issues having uh, occurred. So the training you're doing, is this, you know, helping them understand what type of techniques and what methods they need to go in to complete a well? Or is this more the you've chosen a method, this is the how-to, this is the type, and this is what the tasks that you're going to need to complete this job? Okay. Yeah, so I do go into the how-to, but on a higher level. Uh, I don't, you know, get into the calculations and, and uh, the specifications, things like that. But what it does allow them to do is, is look at certain applications. For example, if they're looking at doing a certain technique that requires cool tubing, but there's not uh, cool tubing available in that area, or at least not the right size, then, then obviously you can eliminate that kind of technique. So it's, it's all about really looking at your application, what you have available, and, and going and working with what you have. What kind of, are you dealing with the operators or the drilling contractors? Who, who is, I guess, who's your client? Who are you te- training in your... Uh, really, it can be anybody. So I, so I do start at the basic level. Uh, operators and service companies, uh, obviously, uh, would be a big target of mine. But uh, I actually do uh, some training for the indirect service companies as well. You know, companies that have casing and tubulars or composite materials for the industry. So it's kind of giving them an insight into the overview of what their materials are going into. And uh, actually, interesting enough, you know, legal teams, uh, financial people that are looking at investing, it's kind of the same deal. They, they need to know enough about the basics so that they can speak the language, if you will. So I guess at some point you could be hired to you know, help someone consult and do due diligence if they're going to invest in something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's had a couple of those kind of conversations anyway, but obviously it would be specific to my background and with completion tools. So Of course. Yeah. So one thing I, I wanted to jump into is, is common misconceptions that you see are, are just plain bad advice that you that you hear out there. From what angle? I'm not quite following you. Just in, in general, you know, fracking and in unconventional, in, in your world that you're in daily. Is there anything you have to kind of untrain when people come to your class? They've exactly. Learned, they've learned bad, bad habits of doing things, like unsafe, inefficient activities. Uh, yeah, to a certain extent, that does happen. That, that's kind of one of the purposes of my class is when, when somebody has a background to a specific completion type and they believe that that's really the only way to do it. What right, I hope yeah, when you're when you're hammer, everything's a nail type situation. Exactly, exactly. Right. So, so I hope what it kind of does is open them up to there are other efficient techniques, and and you have to kind of consider all of them when you're choosing which one. In, in most applications, you know, if you're if you're in the same field, uh, a lot of times you can do a copy and paste, and that's the easy thing to do. But once you kind of uh, start focusing on on certain things like efficiency or or going into a new location, a new area then you kind of have to reanalyze and and hopefully step away from your previous bias. Like, this is the only way to do it. It might be the only way to do it in one area, but that's not necessarily applicable to another area. Gotcha. Gotcha. What about regulatory? Is this the type of training you do? Does this meet any kind of regulatory requirement by the operator or the contractors? 
or is this strictly educational to help them better their operations? So right now it's not uh, required by any kind of regulatory body. It is just uh, purely educational. Uh, Each of the states and and operators have their own training programs, and those really focus on specific to their application. You know, you might have to go to, well, you know, offshore is not what I do, but offshore you would have to go to Gulf Safe before you could step on a drilling rig offshore. Uh, Also, you have the same type of programs that are in the states as well. Before you go on an operator's drilling rig, they may have their own program. There may be a state-regulated program, and, and it goes through the safety on the job. It goes through the environmental issues, and it makes sure that you're prepared to at least know what's going on on location when you arrive. Well, yeah, and handling this equipment, you know, being able to handle a perf gun at surface is, you know, it's it's still a hazardous um, yeah. activity. You need to know exactly what you're doing. Um, Absolutely. Even offshore, I remember going around grabbing cordless phones and anything that it admitted, uh, any kind of dev- uh, any EMF. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just because yeah. you didn't want that thing going off at surface. You want to be exactly in the zone that you put it in before it uh, it discharges. And right, exactly, <laughs> right, right. exactly. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot more space for intrinsically safe devices in the in the in the market too. On that note, there's some interesting companies out there doing some things right now. But uh, yep. yeah, it's surprising there's not much, not more. I mean, I've seen iPads being deployed on site, but it's you know a third, you know, it's an aftermarket case put around the iPad so they can go out there. I'm really surprised there's not more intrinsically safe equipment that is is hard more advanced because radios, flashlights, yeah, we've had those for years, but nothing nothing more advanced than that. Right, right. I wonder if you can make or. I guess companies do currently make intrinsically safe drones. I don't know if you've seen those on the field lately. So not necessarily in this application, but a a colleague of mine actually works international, and they were using drones at a refinery. And this was a really cool technology for for two aspects. First off, preventive maintenance in the refinery. They could fly the drone into areas that were unsafe for humans, and they could see what the problem is. They could see and just do preventive maintenance in general with it. The other aspect is security. So, unfortunately, they were in an area where they uh, came under attack by militias or, or rogue groups anyway, uh, pretty frequently. So they could actually monitor the outer perimeter with those drones and, and watch for incoming threats, things like that. So, so yeah, I'm starting to see drones and things like that being used, not, not specifically to what's being done in, you know, onshore U.S., but just an overall aerial view can give you a lot of stuff too. So I would, I would be surprised if we don't see more usage in onshore U.S. Uh, coming soon. Well, yeah, we, we've talked about onshore U.S. Uh, kind of exclusively in this, but you've done a lot of training overseas. You said in, in China is a big place that you, you actually go over and do a lot of training. So I w- really wanted to get your take on the safety culture of doing training in the United States versus going to a, a foreign country and doing similar training with similar companies, is is the safety culture there? Is the training the same that you're you're offering? Can you give some insight into the differences? Yeah, yeah. So, so the um, so I've been to and I do teach for SPE as well. So I've been to several different countries: the Middle East, uh, Argentina, China. Everybody, at least generally speaking, I would say, kind of strives for the same same overall safety goals. In the field, it's always a little bit different. But, you know, it, it just it's all about constant improvement as well. As, as we're kind of learning more and more about how to operate efficiently on surface, you, you see the, the international companies, especially the service companies and the operators, really trying to take their safety culture into these international markets and, and making an overall better and efficient uh, and safer industry there as well. Right. So you, you mentioned that it's uh, they strive for it, but in the field, it can be a bit different. Do you have a, a story or anything like that from we don't have to name, you know, any yeah, yeah. names, but. <laughs> yeah. So so I, uh, I, I was on a, a rig internationally one time and uh, we, were, we were going to set a packer 
and long story short, and, and, and to skip most of the technical details, we had to apply, best I remember, about 5,000 PSI, as well as a certain amount of tension. So, so we'll just call it uh, 10,000 pounds of, of tension. And the way you do that is you have to actually use the drilling rig to physically pull up the pipe. That's how you apply that uh, force. So we, were, we needed X amount of uh, force, and we had the 5,000 PSI. So they started pulling up on the drilling rig. And the Chicksons, which is just the, the pipes that have the fluid in it that has that 5,000 PSI on it, they started really getting towards their max. So I, I stopped it right there, and I was like, hey, we need to take away some of this length. We, we need to be able to do this, pull that amount of tension without risking uh, bursting that 5,000 PSI pipe. And so they kind of got a little bit of back and forth with it. Uh, they didn't really want to do it. They, they thought it was, you know, it's, it's not. it wouldn't take 15 or 20 minutes to actually stop and do it safely. But they didn't want to do it. So finally, I, I realized it was an argument that I didn't think I would win. So I stopped and I, I pointed at a hill probably about 500 yards away. And I, I said, you see that hill over there? And he looks at me confused and he says, yeah. And I said, if you pull up any more on this pipe, I will be watching you from that hill over there. <laughs> and he's like, okay. And they, they rigged it down, took out some of the length of the pipe and did it, uh, did it the correct way. So always, you know, you're going to have a tendency that people in the field want to, to do it as efficiently as possible. But, you know, as, as you guys point out on this podcast, safety and efficiency go hand in hand because the minute you have a safety incident, that's where inefficiencies really, you know, really cost you some time and money. Yeah, and I want to stay on this topic because I've had some discussions on on the podcast and off about the conflict between operational efficiency and safety. And we all want to go home safe. And right. I, I always argue that the fear of death is too abstract a concept to really be an effective safety motivator that, you know, everybody thinks it's not going to happen to me. So just saying, you know, you don't want to die. You want to go home to your family. Right. Again, it's too abstract. I totally agree with that. After being out in the field with, with Shell and other companies, it, it, you're absolutely right. Yeah, no, heard... one's, no one's going out and, and, and intending to hurt themselves and, and right. potentially die. So right. when you're in the moment, I want your, your opinion, Aaron, about having that conflict and an operations, efficiency-minded person that just wants to get the job done. Right. Being approached by somebody who's pointing out an obvious, maybe not so obvious, but a potential safety hazard. Can you marry the two up? Why, why would that person that you were dealing with not see the hazard that you saw, even when it's pointed out, wanting to kind of fight you on it? It's one of those things that you don't think about it until, you, until it's too late, until after the fact. So I, I actually, when I started with Baker Hughes in 07, you guys had Jack Hinton on the show, uh, and uh, he talked about the previous versus what he kind of implemented. And, and I can vouch for him and say that Baker Hughes had an excellent safety culture. I, I can I see the improvements in myself, you know, still to this day. But so so they kind of gave the authority to to give me that mentality to stop work. Hey guys, this is not safe. Stop work. Now other methods that you can do to improve that 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 they also encourage, and most service companies do this as well as well as operators now. But you, you have your pre-meetings ahead of time. You talk about, hey, here's the operations we're going to do here. Here's going to be our threats. And, and I think that's a big part of it, identifying the threats and understanding, making everybody understand up front, hey, you pull too hard and rupture a line with 5,000 PSI, that's going to be a ba- major safety issue. And get them thinking about it ahead of time instead of just, oh, I, I have to get this done now and move on to the next step. They actually, it's, it's embedded in their brain. This could be dangerous if this happens. Got it. In, in that particular case, that example you gave, was there a language barrier as well? You said internationally. So. Uh, in this particular case, no. So this, this guy was fluent English and uh, Chinese as well. So that wasn't necessarily the case there for them. Got it. Got it. 
So, but that was a, a client you were working for. That wasn't another Baker Hughes, correct? Uh, correct, correct. So, yeah. yeah, I guess wouldn't you know share that dynamic too about you know approaching somebody that is paying your bills, who's in charge of the job, versus you're just a service hand there trying to help them. Right. Yeah, and that's 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 a bold statement to make. And Jack actually, Jack Hinton with Baker referenced that a couple of times in your podcast. But I mean that that is the culture that they enabled. They they enabled you to say, look. We know that this is our paying customer, but if you see something, stop work. I mean, that's we physically had on our ID badges. We had a a uh, card that was a stop work, and basically uh, the message that Baker Hughes gave to us was, you have the authority to pull this at any time. When you don't, when you see something that is not safe, it doesn't matter if it's an operator, it doesn't matter who it is, if it's going to affect anything that Baker Hughes has personnel on, pull the the stop work card, stop operations, and if you need to, leave location. It's so obviously a very bold, uh, bold step to make, uh, and it's not the easiest one to make. But yeah. I think when you embed that into your people, that they do have that authority, I think it goes a long way. Yeah, and, and it goes across the board too. I would, I would argue that Baker Hughes is large enough that they can make those kind of statements that we're not going to work with you if you're not going to honor our stop work authority program. Yep, absolutely. But I think it, the message should ring true to even the smaller operators. If you're smaller operators and contractors and service companies, that if you're working with somebody that doesn't honor you as an individual stopping the job that you think is unsafe, then that's probably not a, a partnership you want to continue with. And I, I think that's happening less in the oil field. I think we're to the point where we understand when somebody's stopping the job, they're not trying to slow work down. They're trying to make the operation better and safer. Right, right. And, I, and you know, you obviously always have to be vigilant and, 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 and you do have to be responsible with it. I mean, don't don't just pull stop work for any any necessarily little minor issue there. You, you don't want to overuse it either. So, so there's always that that learning curve there as well. But, you know, assuming you've had the proper training, you identify these things, you know, the obvious ones like pulling too much tension on a line that has high pressure. You should at least be able to, to spot those really quickly. So yeah, let's um, let's talk about the training that you do. What are, what are some of the kind of the high point safety features that you really focus on with ninety percent of the operations that you teach? Whether it's a you know personal safety, well site safety, environmental issues, what are kind of the like high points you hit on most of the activities that that you train on? So I don't focus specifically on safety, but some of the indirect safeties that I focus on is you know once again if you can use a completion type that uh, helps you save time. Uh, and get you off a location quicker, then that can be a big factor. The other aspect to that is that, you know, depending on your completion type too, you can reduce the uh, amount of space it requires on location. So if you don't have to have as much hydraulic horsepower, you don't have to build as big of a pad, uh, things like that, that's also uh, things to consider. Now, you know, you go to somewhere like the Permian where there's wide open spaces, a lot of times that's not a factor. You know, they, they, they do have the space utilization and they can fix the pad, uh, fix it up afterwards. And recover it, but you go to some of these places in the Marcellus, where you're on the top of a mountain, then then that's uh, space savings can be really critical there, from a just a safety standpoint as well as an environmental standpoint. Yeah, yeah, making the site back to where you know better than what you you came at. So. Exactly, you know, if you can reduce the, just to use some generic numbers, if you could reduce the size of your pad by half, that could have a huge impact over hundreds of wells. Absolutely. Awesome. I think so. This has been a great conversation. We're kind of getting to where we need to start wrapping things up and uh, doing some of our housekeeping. But you know, the Red Wing Safety Tip of the Week that we always do, we want to give it to our guests. So, Aaron, do you have a Red Wing Safety Tip of the Week for our, our audience? I do. So, I was thinking about this ahead of time, trying to figure out what it was. So, so I want to share the one that uh, has that I learned from oil and gas that has been most applicable just in my everyday life. And that's if at all possible, you should park facing forward. 
So if you have an opportunity to pull through parking spaces so that when you pull through, then you're pulling forward, do it. Also, if you're backing into your or if you're pulling into your driveway, I highly recommend backing into it. You know, my subdivision is set up just about like everybody else's. So if you pull in the driveway frontwards and you're reversing out of the driveway, on your right and left, you're blocked by houses. You can't see it. You pull out a little bit further, there's trees blocking you. And then there's a sidewalk where kids or anyone else can be going, not to mention cars passing through, flying through the neighborhood. But if you pull back into your driveway, you're in the middle of the road, everyone can see you, you have all sites that you can see from, and overall it's just, I think it's been very valuable. You know, the original reason that this was taught in the oil and gas field is so that if you're on an oil rig and stuff starts going bad, then you can pull off a location and you're not having 15 different people collide into each other. You're pulling out forward, you can leave in a hurry, but safely at the same time, and I think it's very applicable. And one of the reasons that it really hit me to share that one is because it's uh, it's really a shame to share how many times I have nearly been backed over in my neighborhood just walking the dogs by people not paying attention. And I'm a vigilant walker. I'm always watching, <laughs> making sure, looking for reverse lights. And they still just, uh, it, it's, it can be a huge safety hazard. That's a dangerous part of walking to the park whenever we're coming yep. home. My daughter wants to run ahead, but that's the, there's this one section we have to pass by all the houses and I'm. I, I won't let her go by herself because right. of that reason. But to your point, I've also heard that you're more so you're more vigilant when you're ending your drive. So when you get to a parking spot, you're in the drive mode. You're you're more aware versus you first get in the car, you turn it on, you're doing whatever you're going to do. That the amount of attention you're paying is significantly different yes. from the end versus the beginning. Right. And I would warm. even argue. Yeah. I would even argue doing the walk around your car before you you get in and drive off is another you know. Same thing. You want to make sure that you're being as safe as you can when you're getting on the road. Yep. In a parking, whether it's at your home or in a at a parking garage. Absolutely, absolutely. That's uh, and and not to mention, you know, you leave your house first thing in the morning. Maybe you hadn't had that first cup of coffee. You're not fully attentive yet either. Uh, unfortunately, I did have a neighbor. Well, unfortunately and fortunately, she got grazed in the shoulder by a backing up car, but uh, nothing severe. Just a little bruise on her shoulder, but. The car drove off and apparently did not even know that they hit her. So, yeah, so, so you take into those types of factors, too, that you might not be fully aware and fully awake. And, and I think that's a great idea. Before you get in, make, take a walk around your car. Sure. Uh, check it out. Wake up a little bit. Toys, kids, pets, you yeah. know, anything could be there. So, yeah, just yeah. just doing a walk around. But, uh, you know, great safety tip. And, you know, I think the oil field practices it pretty well. It's funny when you go to a, an office building, you can tell where the uh, where the, the oil field hands park and where everybody else parks. Is you certainly right. can, yeah. yeah. I noticed that. Uh, the, the other thought I, I had too is the opposite, really. Like people are over caffeinated and uh, just <laughs> yeah. you know in love with so many stimulants that they just fly out of their driveway. Just with, excited to get to work. That's yeah, they're right. just so excited to get to work, <laughs> or they maybe woke up late and they're That's you right. know they're leaving That's at right. the last minute. And I, I see that in, in my neighborhood, too. I think you're going to see it more and more. So, yep. um, you know, unfortunately. Well, so. And, and I, I, I rattled so many around. And, and obviously, the quick one I'll throw out there is don't text and drive. But that's actually the closest call I've had while walking the dogs. I, I sat there watching somebody in their driveway. I could tell they were on their phone, but I, I could see them in their rearview mirror. I waited two minutes. They never left. And finally, I'm like, okay, got my dogs close, tried to go for it. And I'm talking about as soon as I got where I was, both my dogs and myself were by their back tire, like, you know, within hitting distance. Mm-hmm. They threw it in reverse, did not look in the rearview mirror. I stumbled over my dogs, yanked them both back. And, yeah, she backs out of her driveway. And as she's fully out of her driveway, I could say I shocked her because she looks up and there's somebody there. And I'm like, you know, but she was content on her phone, not paying attention. And, and it happens. So, so always be a vigilant walker as well. Absolutely.
All right, well, that was, that was a great safety tip, and that brings us to the Red Wing offshore bag, which we gave away one a week, and it's not here today because Barton brought all his gear. He set up the podcast <laughs> today, so I didn't have to bring my bag. But Sorry, folks. <laughs> anyway, if you want to win the bag, you can go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. No purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. And if you want to help us out, we would love you to give us a review on iTunes. Just go into iTunes. I can't remember exactly where it is, but it, it's a lot easier to find if you're on your computer. The phone does not make it easy to leave reviews, but we'd love for you to leave us a review. And you can sign up for our email list and the show notes and events, events and sponsors. Barton and I and the whole podcast crew will be at OTC coming right. up in very shortly. Us. First week in May. We have the Oil and Gas Global Network Happy Hour, which uh, coincidentally, that's where Aaron and I met at yep, the that's right. Happy Hour there at WeWork Galleria. That's going to be on April 25th. I believe so. Yeah, so this one, this episode will come out after that, but we're doing it once a once a month, last week of the month. Check out the site, the show notes for information on when the next one's coming up. And then the BPMS 150 at the end of April. Again, that might be passed, but uh, yeah, uh, if you haven't gone to that, that's a good event. That's right. Where are we actually setting up for, for that? Do you know? I know we're going to be in LaGrange at the midway point. I don't know if we're all going to be in Austin, but I think a couple of us are going to go to Austin as well. But uh, yeah, should be a, a good time. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a huge event. I think it's the, one of the largest uh, charity events that the oil and gas industry puts on by uh, BP, but a uh, great charity as well. And I think, Barton, if there's anything else you wanted to say, that might bring us to the end. Just thanks again for having me. I'm definitely looking forward to bringing you fellow listeners of this show some amazing conversations with thought leaders in these two areas that we mentioned earlier, so LNG and renewable energy. So those shows will be airing as soon as we have sponsors. If you have any thoughts on that, you can reach me on LinkedIn or Twitter, whatever you prefer, at Barton Scott. Thanks for listening. Awesome. I know I forgot, Aaron. Oh, yeah. How would you yeah. like people to contact you? LinkedIn, the website, where, where should people go to find out more information? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You? So I'm, I'm uh, very active on LinkedIn. It may take me a couple of uh, days to respond on the, the messenger itself, uh, but you can always find my video blog at uh, Unconventional Oil and Gas Training and shorthand UOGtraining.com. And a lot of good videos on there. So if you if you don't understand unconventional drilling operations, fracking, any any of the things we talked about that Aaron does a lot of great educational videos and short too. They're easily digestible. Yep. yep. Uh, each video is about five minute segment of my training classes and just uh, working on putting more and more out there and they're, they're all free. So yeah, we'll put links in the show notes so people can go find those and, uh, and learn more about it. Excellent. Great. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show. Um, that's it for us. Yep. Signing off. Y'all be safe out there. Thank you guys. Thanks. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. All right. Craziest thing you've seen in the field? I know you kind of already did the, the overpull. Yeah. So when I first started, I went out on my first uh, training job offshore and uh, talking to the tool hand that was with me. I was a trainee, obviously. And uh, I, I'd gone through the training, but the man basket is pretty intimidating just overall. So if you're not familiar with a man basket, uh, just kind of imagine a uh, flotation ring 
with a big flotation ring at the bottom, some netting going up that has ropes uh, interlocked, and then a smaller flotation device uh, at the top. The old so billy pew. What's that? The old billy pew. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so basically, you take from your personnel and equipment from an offshore boat, you put it on the man basket, and then a crane picks you up offshore. So it's my first time to go offshore. I'm extremely nervous. And, of course, uh, get out on a boat, uh, and it, we have like six to eight foot swells. So uh, it's rocky the whole time. Didn't sleep a wink because of the rocking. And we get ready to go on there, and I'm talking to the guy that I'm training under. I'm like, hey, I, I'd like to watch you go first. And he's like, that's a really good idea, and go from there. But it doesn't always quite work like that. So, <laughs> so it turns out there were actually only four of us on the boat that night that were actually going to the rig. So... I'm sitting there waiting. I'm, I'm, my sea legs are terrible. And all of a sudden, the boat crew looks, one of the guys looks at me and he's like, What are you doing? Get your shit and get on. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, what? Uh, okay. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm obviously observing. I'm being very careful. I've got my equipment in there. And uh, as you can imagine, in six to eight foot swells, maybe even up to 10 foot swells, the boat is going up and down significantly. So all of a sudden, the basket is in the air. All of a sudden, it's slamming against the boat. So you have to be, you have to was time this, it right. Was this a new rigid one or were these still collapsible? These were collapsible. Okay. Yes. Yes. A little more difficult. Yeah. A little bit more difficult. <laughs> yep. So yeah, I'm, I'm like, all right, we're going. And I thought everybody was on the same page. So I jump on real quick and I was the only one <laughs> but, and the crane wasn't moving. But, uh, so I had to, you know, kind of, uh, jump back off real quick before it got taken up. So it didn't go off balance and stuff. So anyway, the next time we all communicated a little bit better and said, okay, here it is. Let's get it. So we all jumped four jumped on and all three of these guys have been out multiple times. So they're like standing on it with one arm or one hand, just kind of loosely gripping the rope as we're being lifted over the sea. And I've got my arms interlocked in these ropes, death grip on it. Like you're supposed uh, to. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Standard that was protocol. Uh, yeah, that's right. So that, that was, that was probably one of the most interesting things uh, as I kind of joined the industry to, to see. And I'm glad to hear that most of the time they're not the collapsible ones anymore. Is that not a fair anymore, statement? Yeah. yeah. Well, the collapsible, so, they, they were easy to store. They you know, yes, fold right. up into nothing. Now you've got the rigid ones that take up a, a pretty big footprint. Right, right. 